Well, the issue before us this morning is huge. It's the issue of what is God like? What a question. It's a huge question. What is God like? Of all the questions in the world, it's one of the biggest ones. There's the question of, is there a God? But ranking right up there is, what's God like? I can't think of anything more important for us to talk about. I'm so glad I'm here today. I'm so glad that we have an answer to the question. I'm so glad you're here today because it'll be kind of a joy of discovery kind of thing. What is God like? That's what Moses is grappling with in Exodus chapter 3. There are all these gods, many, many, many gods. People create all kinds of different shrines and idols. And so there are many, 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 many different kinds of gods. And then Moses has this encounter with a divine being. And he wants to know, what are, what are you like? He wants to know what his name is. And in an ancient world, this world in particular, in the biblical world, especially the Old Testament, names mean more than it kind of sounds nice, you know. Uh, oftentimes, not always, there's significance with a name. Oftentimes for us, my parents named me Patrick because they knew someone else named Patrick and they liked the other person named Patrick and it just sounded nice and nobody else was named Patrick in the family. And, you know, then the cheesy Christian bookstore makes up some definition so everyone thinks they have an important name. Sorry. I mean, I mean, what is it going to mean? Like, fool. <laughs> Doesn't look good on a plaque. Um, some names do have real historical significance, but others just don't. But think about an ancient world, think about especially in the Old Testament, a name is descriptive, especially when it comes to God. Moses wants to know what God is like. And in Exodus chapter 3, which we read in our scripture reading, in the 13th verse, he says, what is his name? That's what they're going to ask me. They're going to want to know what you're like when I go back. What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses in verse 14 of Exodus 3, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Then he says in verse 15, this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. What's God like? I am. Puzzling. Odd, strange. We think it's strange. Moses would have thought it was strange. I am? Consider the context where God has promised to deliver from slavery. And he is going to deliver them and he's going to deliver them powerfully even though it looks like it could never happen. It's against all odds. God is going to do it. What kind of God can do this? God, what are you like? The God who can do what seems like can't be done, the God you can count on, is the God whose name is I Am. That becomes important. That becomes very important. I am who I am from the verb to be. It's a statement of existence. It may also be translated, I will be who I will be. In theology, 
we talk about the aseity of God. We're going to talk about theology today because this is church. That's what we do. <laughs> okay? Who is God? What is He like? That's theology. This is a statement of aseity, the aseity of God. God is a se, a in Latin, and then se in Latin. Listen to this textbook definition. It comes from the Latin a, meaning from, and se, meaning oneself. From oneself. Tell them that from oneself sent you. Going on in that textbook definition, God is underived, necessary, non-dependent existence. I'm going to add to that a little bit. He is unmanageable. He is free. I really like that word that was used in that textbook definition. He's independent. He depends upon no one. He depends upon nothing. Now, we're going to keep talking about the definition a little bit because I want you to know who God is. What is He like? He's the great I am. He's the Ase one. He's the self-existent one. He's the one who doesn't depend upon anything or anyone else. I think it was D.A. Carson who said, we're talking about the godness of God when we're talking about the aseity of God. He's like no other. There's no one else like Him. It's further developed, this idea of God's self-existent freedom to do whatever He wants to do, further developed in Exodus when God says things like, I'll do whatever I want to do. Like in chapter 33, I'll save whoever I want to save. But I, I want to keep reminding you, in our context, this is personal. Okay? Because we're, we're doing theology class right now. God is self-existent. God is different. God is unique. God is not dependent upon anyone or anything. And, and that all is kind of heady because we can't relate Him to anything or anyone else because there's no one or nothing else like Him. But I want you to know and I want to remind you of why this is so important because theology is always practical. Even if it weren't, it would be right. It's in the context of Exodus 3. The Israelites can count on Him to deliver them. Nothing can stop this from happening. The badness of the Israelites can't ultimately stop this from happening. The badness of the Egyptians can't ultimately stop this from happening. Nothing can stop this from happening because God is not dependent upon anyone or anything. So if He says, this is what I'm going to do, I, He's going to do it. And see, that, that, that'll preach. <laughs> You want God, if you're going to trust in His promises, to be a-se. It becomes a beautiful doctrine because it's reality that relates to His trustworthiness. It's awesome, awesome, awesome stuff. And Isaiah talks about His eternal, independent existence apart from creation like in chapter 40, 41, 44, 48, 43. One modern writer says this about God's aseity. God thereby reveals His name in the midst of demonstrating His eternal purpose and unchangeable nature. See, that's practical. It's no small thing. Going on to give you a little bit more. This is, this is all introduction, by the way. It doesn't count against my time. 
It does. Listen to this. Independent, that's a good aseity word, independent of the conditions of finitude, finiteness, appropriate to creaturely existence, that would be us, Yahweh, God, can be trusted to bring to pass everything that He has promised. His name can be invoked or called upon with total confidence, both because He is faithful to His promise and because, how about this, He is not dependent on creatures for realizing His purposes. See, you want God to be ah-say. Precisely because God is not dependent on anyone or anything He has created, we are assured that nothing will keep Him from being there for us. God is no more dependent on human beings in salvation than in creation. That's a modern writer. Let me give you an older writer. Herman Bovink. 150 years ago off the top of my head. This unbounded, limitless absolutely undetermined, unqualified view of God. I like that. Absolutely undetermined, unqualified, limitless view of God is irreconcilable to pantheism in the ancient and modern world. Totally different than he names Babylonian, Hellenistic, Neoplatonist, Kabbalistic, or Spinozistic. The philosopher Spinoza. It's incompatible of old school pantheism, new school pantheism. It's the utter godness of God. God's aseity is the infinite perfection of his greatness. And then Bavink quotes Psalm 145.3. This is great. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. See, this this produces worship for the psalmist. He's so great, I, I, I can't really get my mind around this God who is I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Say what? Yeah, is to say everything. Now we come to Jesus. Now we come to John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, Jesus, sorry, I'm going to give you the punchline now. Jesus is going to say, before Abraham was, what? I am. Jesus claims to be ah say. Jesus claims to be None other than this great I am God. And I'm going to give you all the punchline now, and then we're going to see it in the context. And think about this. Temporal deliverance from the Egyptians. Right? With Passover and all that. And then we know, prefiguring, ultimate deliverance, the one who, by the way, is called the Passover Lamb of God, Jesus is the ultimate deliverer who is the one you can count on because he is none other than the I am deliverer. So awesome. I mean, it just, quite honestly, it does not get better than this. 
It is amazing. Nothing, this is why nothing can reverse. This is why it's undoable, right? That's a good introduction. Um, Because when we answer the question, what is God like? And now we can answer the question, what is Jesus like? He's the great I am. He's the one. He's the one you've been waiting for, even if you haven't been waiting for him. Isn't it interesting too? This is still introduction. Isn't it interesting that the unmanageableness of this kind of deity, and by now the, the Jews, even though they have the real Bible and a real historic lineage, they've gotten to the place where they think they can manage God. And they've got it under control. And they're the ultimate authorities. And they sit in judgment on the scriptures. And here comes the unmanageable, the say one to set things straight. It's amazing. So today is John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. If you're just joining us, we've been studying the gospel according to John. Uh, and we've been learning all kinds of things about Jesus. And today we're going to enter into John chapter 8. If we start in verse 48 and go to 59, it's, it's, a, it's a hostile environment. Um, they don't like this unmanageable Jesus. They want to manage him. The punchline is in verse 58. So go ahead and look down at verse 58 with me if you would. Jesus said to them in the midst of the, the controversy, he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Astounding, staggering, changes everything, tells us so very much about Jesus. He is the self-existent God. There's none other like him. What he promises will most certainly, absolutely become reality. It's awesome. Now let's rewind. Let's go back to verse 48. Okay? Join me if you would. You've you've pretty much already got everything good you're going to get, so the rest of this is just filler. Um, But it's good to see the context. John 8, 48 says, The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I realize that comes out of nowhere. But Jesus just told them that their, their father's the devil. But the difference is, with the name calling, Jesus actually had a logical argument to show that they actually are, are bad and wrong. And their response to that is just name calling. Okay? And so that's what happens when you don't really have a good argument. Um, you, you probably should look because I don't want you to take my word for it. Um, Jesus tells them they're not of God but of the devil. But do notice back in 44 to 47, just so you can see, Jesus calls them the devil first, if you will, or of, the, of their father, and they respond without logic. Look at verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. See, there's logic there. That's how he can say that. He was a murderer from the beginning. Oh, there's logic being teased out, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. All that's true, 45. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Right? He's, he's not committed any sin, but they're going to They want him killed as if he's sinning. If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. That's logical. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And they say, you're you're a demon. You're a devil. You're a Samaritan. 
Don't know exactly why he says, uh, they say he's a Samaritan. It could be because he spent time in Samaria. And Jews hate Samaritans and Samaritans hate Jews. Okay? It could also be because by now he's gone to such extremes. He said such terrible things. He's been so insulting that he has nothing to do with true, pure, doctrinal, 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 you get the idea, Judaism. For you to say that to us and we are the teachers, we are the leaders, and for you to say that we're of the devil, you're not even a Jew. You're a dreaded Samaritan. It's an insult either way. Which one? Don't know for sure, but, but, but it's, it's intense. You're not even an Orthodox person. I do like to pause for just a second and, and, and say, I, I do like the idea of, of dealing with the issue is, uh, of he's either the God-man or he's demonic. That's not altogether bad thinking. He is making such outlandish and such extraordinary claims that he can't just be a good teacher because he's not claiming to be one. And if you're claiming to be God and you're not, you're not a good teacher. And so I think we should be somewhat, in a certain way, sympathetic. He has said such, such amazing things. It's either true or he's, he's demon-possessed. 49, look with me if you would. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Exact opposite. You're saying I'm demonic. I honor my father, the father, the God of heaven and earth. I'm doing the exact opposite of what you're claiming. Oh, and by the way, notice what he says. You dishonor me. Notice the logic. We can understand this, even though it's limited. We can understand that if you're disrespectful to someone's children, you're disrespectful to the parents. Right? If you're mean to my kids, I don't care how nice you are to me. I'm mad at you. I realize it's just an illustration. But if they truly love God the Father, and He has a Son who's telling them the truth about Him, they'll accept Him. And Jesus is saying, you're not doing that. By the way, this does go back to what we learned about last time. The one true living God has a son. And he's revealed himself through his son. And Jesus is making a strong argument in John chapter 8, not just here but earlier, that if you reject the son, you don't have the father. This is one of the reasons why we evangelize people. Because lots of people say God's stuff, but they don't believe Jesus is who Jesus said he was. And we don't say, well, it's all okay because you say God too. No. Hope is found in the Son. Life is found in the Son. Honoring the Son is mandatory. Someone had a good observation about this, and I'll just read it. By saying and doing always and only what the Father gives him to say and do, he honors the Father. By refusing to respond positively to those same words and deeds, his hearers dishonor him, and therefore him who sent him. Okay, verse 50, if you would. Yet, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. He's going to say more about that later in verse 54. But the gist of what he's getting at is, 
There's one opinion that matters. Okay? It's the Father's. And you can sit in judgment of me all day long, but there's one opinion that matters, and it's the judge. It's God's. He's pursuing. He's going after the only glory that's going to matter will come from the Father. Now, secondarily, I just can't help myself as a pastor of a church to say, secondarily, there's something we could learn from that. Whose opinion ultimately matters? Who are we trying to impress? Who are we trying to please? Who are we trying to please with what we do in a church service? Who am I trying to please ultimately now? Who are we trying to please in our different ministries? Ultimately, in the end, no one's opinion matters other than God's opinion. And by way of principle, I would want to say we need to remember that because I'm always feeling the pressure. You're always feeling the pressure. And what, what, how's that going to go? And how's that going to fly? And that's not politically correct. And what about... Our Lord is a good example to us here. There's only one opinion that ultimately matters. Good, good application there. How about verse 51 then? Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word... He will never see death. Commentators have to guess here, but, but many of them guess that the reason he's back to saying what he's been saying all along right here, a little bit out of the blue, is perhaps, perhaps, it's triggered by talking about God as judge. I don't know for sure, but he did, did just bring that to light, that you've got to give an account to God someday, and that means trouble for everybody. So let me remind you again of what I've been saying throughout this whole thing, and that is the one who turns to me, right? The one who turns to me has life. If anyone keeps my word, that, he's been using that synonymously throughout the gospel account for faith in Christ, his claims, his work, he will never see death. That's the solution to the God is judge dilemma, if you will. That's how that happens. That's a pretty big claim too, by the way, in 51. The way to escape death is only through him. Who does he think he is? Oh, we're going to find out. Yeah. See, he can make the, he's making those kinds of promises, and I want you to, to draw the connections. Promise for temporal life deliverance in Exodus. Promise for ultimate spiritual eternal life here in the ultimate Exodus, if you will. How can he make such claims? Yeah, because of who he is and because of what he does. that introduction wasn't so long. Now time's against me. You might want to jot down in your margin. Uh, we won't take the time to go there. In the margin of verse 51, you could jot down John 11, 17 to 27. And the reason is this. In John 11, you have the death of Lazarus. And Jesus raises him. But Jesus speaks of one never dying in chapter 11. 
And he certainly, in context, is not talking about physical death. He's talking about the second death. He's talking about eternal death. Okay? He says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We've learned by now in John's gospel account and from the mouth of Jesus, sometimes Jesus intends to be taken woodenly, literally. But time and time again, he doesn't mean to be taken that way, and you learn that from the context. We would learn from the greater context when he says, if you believe in him, you keep his word, you'll never die. He doesn't mean physical death. I know he doesn't mean physical death because of John chapter 11. He's talking death in the ultimate sense. That was helpful for me because I, I've always thought, well, I, I, can, I can theologize and explain it, but I want to prove it in the text. It's in chapter 11. It's how Jesus is referring to it. How about, are we in verse 52? Yeah? I'm just having too much fun up here. Um, the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. See, he just said, you'll never die. If you're a believer, you never die. See, they're taking him as he didn't intend to be taken. Abraham died. They know he's a believer. And as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Who do you think you are? We know you're not telling the truth. We know you're not better than they are. Who, who in the world do you think you are? Now, we know a lot more. We know a lot more because of who Jesus is. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than all the prophets. He's greater than all of them put together. And by the way, because he is going to overcome death and conquer the grave, the second death, ultimate death, will actually not be a reality for anyone who believes in him. It would be including Abraham. Verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? It's like the question. Who do you make yourself out to be? What are you like? Who are you? Now he's going to answer, but I I just want to pause and remind you of something Jesus said earlier in chapter 8. Who who do you think you are? How could you be better than them? They're the greatest of the greats. There's no way you're in the same league as they are. And you're saying, believe in you and you won't die. They died. This doesn't make any sense. Now remember, since we have to cover portions and we can't do it all at once, what makes Jesus different is a lot of things. But one thing that we've already learned in chapter 8 that makes things different, chapter 8, verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That does make Jesus utterly different from all of the others. But we're going to learn more from Jesus. How about verse 54? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father, he picks up on the theme he talked about earlier, it is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So you talk a big talk. He's our God. He's our God. He's our God. He's our God. 
But that God is the God who glorifies me. He's my father. I'm his son. So you claim to know God. Jesus responds in verse 55, but you have not known him. What is he saying? He's saying, he's not your God. You can talk about Yahweh all you want. He's not your God. Because you reject his son. Notice Jesus says in verse 55, I know him. This is relational, okay? This is not facts. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him. Ah, what makes Jesus different? And I keep his word. Ah, so different. So different. Changes everything. Fifty-six says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What does that mean? I'm convinced Jesus knows what it means. I'm not exactly sure what it means. Abraham, he saw my day and he rejoiced. Depending on what study Bible you have, option one. <laughs> Substitution, prefiguring, even when he was going to offer Isaac, perhaps. God provided the substitute. There's one study Bible option. Another study Bible option. Referring to what Hebrews 11.13 is referring to. Having seen them and greeted them from afar, they saw in anticipation. They were expectant based upon the promises that they had been given from God regarding a substitute, regarding the one that had been spoken of, quite honestly, since Genesis chapter 3. Regardless, Abraham knew he couldn't save himself. Abraham knew he had to have a substitute. Abraham knew he had to have a perfect redeemer. Abraham had to look outside of himself to have the Abrahamic promises be fulfilled. And he rejoiced not in himself and his obedience or lack thereof. He rejoiced in that reality, righteousness outside of himself. And Jesus is saying, you're looking at him. I'm the one. You guys are big Abraham followers. Let's follow Abraham now. Because he rejoiced in seeing me pretty amazing pretty amazing 57 so the Jew said to him you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham <laughs> you're not even old right 50 would be old in the culture you're not even old you've seen Abraham 2,000 years beforehand Fifty-eight. Here we go. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, earnestly, drop dead seriousness. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's been giving us little tastes. He'll say, I am the bread. 
I am, and there's all these different I am statements, but they've all been waiting for this one that's sort of like the granddaddy of them all. I mean, if you were going to go to the Bible in the Old Testament and say, where can we learn about what God is like? I would for sure go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, that there's only one God, Deuteronomy 6, 4. And I would for sure go to Exodus chapter 3. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it deserves a podium place, right? At least top three. What is God like? He, he's the God who's God. He's the God who is self-existent. He's the God who is independent, right? This is creature-creator distinction kind of stuff. I mean, it, it's for sure a top three, if not the top one. And you go, Jesus just claimed to be him. This is as, as, as extreme, as radical as... If he's not telling the truth, demonic as you could possibly be, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be Ase. Wow! It's no wonder believers worship Jesus. Before Abraham was, he doesn't say, I was, though that would be true. Because he's not only talking about pre-existence. It's pre-existence, yes, but it is claim to deity. Before Abraham was, I am. Exodus 3. This causes, well, we should probably just go ahead and look at it instead of me just talking about it. This causes the right response if Jesus is not telling the truth. Look at 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. We execute those who commit blasphemy. He's worthy of this if it's not true. It's a total, it's a total kind of bogus argument. I can't even think of what kind of words to describe it to say that, that Jesus didn't really mean he's claiming to be the Exodus 3 one. It doesn't work at all. Jesus didn't claim to be divine. No, the response from the Jews tells us they knew exactly what he was saying. But the implications are huge. Because if you don't like Jesus, he can't be this manageable guy you learn about on CNN. I realize that's a contradiction in terms, learning on CNN. But anyway, <laughs> it's that time of year, the real Jesus, the true Jesus. He can't be that guy. And so it makes you mad, it makes you frustrated. You've got to try to reinvent him into something else. Because the implication is, if he is the great I am, that means there's one way to the Father. It's in contrast to polytheism. Many ways. It's the only way. So if you're against him, you, you hate this reality. But if you're for him and you're believing in him, like many of you, you say, Jesus is even better than I thought he was. Please, please, please see the connection between the God who, whose promises cannot be overturned due to anything outside of himself. the Ase God and his promise to deliver. See, 
nothing can stop it from happening. That's Exodus 3 in context. And here Jesus says, if you come to me for life, you will never die. The ultimate death. You can take it to the bank and count on him and know that it's true because he is the great I am. It is truly amazing. It really, 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 really is amazing. I'm going to end with a quotation from an apologetics book that some of you are fond of by Scott Oliphant. He says this about this text. And Jesus. He tells them, Jesus tells them, that the one who identified himself to Moses on Mount Moriah as the I Am is the very one standing before them at that moment. And they understand without question exactly what Jesus is claiming. How unsearchable, the psalmist says, is his greatness. And therefore the psalmist praises. Let's praise. Father, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus. Thank you that the gospel is simple. Thank you that we don't have to understand all of these intricacies. But thank you that they're understandable. Thank you that you have shown yourself to be a great and mighty and powerful, personal, close, caring Savior. And that life is found in your Son, Jesus, irreversibly, unstoppably so. Use this like, like medicine, if you will, in our lives, that it, that it might remind us, that it might soothe us, that it might bring comfort knowing that the tomb is empty. And that you are pleased with what your son Jesus did. And that he is the firstborn among many. That we might be trusting in him and no one or nothing else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.